We're in Matthew 23. Today we're wrapping up a series entitled, This is God's Church. And what we've been doing in this series is been laying out why we believe this foundational statement that this truly is God's church. And how we've been doing that is discussing some of the obstacles that can get in the way of God's church continuing to move. We see these obstacles in history. We also see these obstacles pointed out in the scriptures. And so we have spent the entire summer thus far. And at the beginning of this series, uh, I told you a few things. I told you I'd wear this shirt every week of it. I've done that. Told you that I would wear shorts at least once. So here you go. All right. So there was a guy, um, second time at the church, came to the nine o'clock. I kid you not, he came up to me after service. He said, I sat in the parking lot for five minutes debating whether or not I should walk into the church because I was wearing shorts. So God knows what he's doing, even with my awesome calves to show off to you all. Okay? You done staring? Okay. All right. Now, in this series, what we've been doing is, again, we've been laying out the obstacles that get in the way of this church being God's church. And because we really believe that, we, we took a whole summer to kind of lay them out. We started with the obstacle of powerlessness. And powerlessness happens for one of two reasons. One, because you get a faulty foundation, which is anything other than a biblically accurate doctrine, particularly around the person of Christ. And so we laid that out early on in the series. Secondly, powerlessness comes uh, because of a lack of prayer and fasting. Next week, I'm going to talk more about prayer and fasting as we lead into our worship night and our first time uh, doing a 48-hour fast as a church leading into that worship night, uh, which would have been two weeks ago from, from last Friday. Then after that, we talked about the natural church, and the natural church has become worldly in its methods, trusting more in the world's methods than in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the way we combat that is by uh, being open to what the Spirit wants to do because it's God's church and the Spirit is God and so it's His church and He can do what He wants. Then we talked about the historical obstacles. The historical church is the church that is stuck in its methods because it has elevated the past or it has elevated things that they're comfortable with over what God is doing right now. And we uh, have to then remain sensitive to the Spirit to always see what is He doing right now and then to fall in line. And then last week, we laid out the obstacle of the corrupt church. And uh, the corrupt church has become self-serving. The corrupt church has become way too money-focused. The corrupt church will twist doctrine and morality uh, in order to produce self-serving ends as opposed to the gospel. And the way we fight against that is just by remaining open, open in the scriptures, open to the gospel, pouring into us as individuals, as leaders, as a corporate body, um, open in our, in our books financially, uh, and then always open one to another to let God speak and move and to avoid that. Today, we talk about the last obstacle. And this obstacle, I believe, is the one that is the hardest to see, but it is the one that is uh, the most deeply entrenched. In this obstacle, Jesus reserves his harshest words. The harshest words in the scriptures, at least by Jesus, were not reserved for the rebellious, at least rebellious as we normally see it. The harshest words in scripture were reserved for Jesus' harshest words, the religious, the self-righteous. 
Now, some of you might be confused because you're like in a church and you're like, isn't this religious? Like, isn't all of this religious? Well, let's not get caught up in terminology. So let me give you a definition of what I mean when I say religious. That way we can be on the same page. Because today what we're talking about is the obstacle of the religious house or the religious person or the religious church. House and church are interchangeable terms in this series, if you're new. Let me give you my definition of religion or of religious, a self-righteous faith that is more concerned with the perception of religious adherence than actually surrendering to Christ. In this expression, it often results in elevating the wrong things, diminishing the right things, ruining people who are truly seeking, and creating a hierarchy of religious obedience that makes the adherent feel justified without actually submitting to Christ. Elevates the wrong things, diminishes the right things, ruins people who are truly seeking, makes the adherent feel justified without actually ever submitting to Christ. This is the religious spirit. And why the religious spirit is so dangerous is because it looks so good. The religious spirit is dangerous because those who hold on to the religious spirit typically do many or all of the behaviors associated with godliness or church attendance. They behave well. They're moral people. They pay their taxes. They pay their tithe. They serve. They work hard. They don't do bad things. They're obedient and holy in a sense of looking out with that we would call holy. Jesus' harshest words in the scriptures are not for those who are apart from God because of their sinful, evil, heinous, disgusting, rebellion, or sinful acts. Jesus' harshest words in the scripture are those who are alienated from him because their own morality has separated them from his heart. The religious house is probably one that most of us are familiar with at some point in time in our lives. Maybe because we got caught up in it. Maybe because we spent years in it. And today's message is just a reminder of what you've been set free from and the grace that has now been poured out to you. For others of you, perhaps you're still in this place and you didn't even know it. And you have a faith that is actually religious. Your justification is coming from a false place. And today is about the gospel in Jesus' harsh words reminding you that there is a better, freer, more beautiful way. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would see that better, more beautiful way and that you would see it through Jesus' warnings, his warnings, where he says, don't do this. Or he, they're actually woes, which are just like extreme warnings that you would see today and you would be set free from this type of religious burden. I've said this often, and I'll say it again as we start. The most miserable people in the world are not those who are apart from God because of their disgusting sin. 
it leads to a bad path and, and it does lead to destruction and despair and all of that. No, the most miserable people in the world are the religious in this way because they're so close, but yet so far. And they think that they have figured it out and there is no hope or beauty in the gospel, but they haven't actually seen the gospel yet. It's covered by this type of religious spirit. And I pray that tonight or today that the veil over your eyes would be torn and that you might see the gospel this morning. Jesus gives seven warnings to the religious leaders. This is near the end of his, his life and therefore the end of his, his ministry, at least his ministry while he was here on earth. And uh, in this then, Jesus, he, he gives these seven woes or seven warnings. And what I want to do is just walk you through each of the seven so that you can uh, um, be warned as Christ wanted us to be warned. Uh, and then also uh, at the end, then just show you the better way. And in each of these, then, I'll also give you what I believe is the false sense of justification. Justification is just a doctrinal term that means how I become right with God. And so what I want to do then is give you what I believe is the false justification that sits underneath each of these warnings. Said another way, it's how these things began to be manifested in the people that Christ is warning. Verse 13, we'll start there. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This word hypocrite is going to be, it's not the most frequent word, uh, but it is the one that stands out the most. Most of us are familiar with this term hypocrite. It means to play act or the etymology of it was people who would be on stage in one character and then later they would come out as a completely different character. And the idea of hypocrisy, particularly in our modern understanding of it, is somebody who professes a faith in Christ, but uh, doesn't actually live out that faith or isn't actually surrendered or submitted to Jesus. And so he's going to use this at the beginning of each warning. He says, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Notice that right here at the beginning, Jesus is making a very strong statement. And he is saying, you religious leaders, don't you understand? You're not actually in. See, this is one of the confusing things. Oftentimes we think that the religious person just has a misunderstanding of the gospel. Jesus is saying, no, they haven't actually ever grasped the gospel. And that their moral behavior, their good behavior, isn't a sign that they've understood the gospel. It could be a sign that they have become religious in this way. And so Jesus warns the people. He says, woe to you, you shut the kingdom of heaven. Let me give you the, the warning, I think, in a more modern way. The warning is this. It's a warning against a self-inflated holiness that actually restricts the gospel. It's a type of religion. It's a type of pursuit of God where there's so many barriers in the way of salvation that people look at and go, I could never get through that mess so I'm not even going to try. And what that mess is are things mostly man-made created or distortions of biblical commands that man has instituted prior to the point of salvation. Let me say it more clearly or plainly. It's the idea of clean yourself up and then come to Jesus. 
It's like when I talk to people and they say, my life is a mess right now and I'll come back to church when I'm done. Oh, then you've missed the whole point, man. And what he's warning those people, uh, the, the, the religious, what he's warning them is about all of these rules and all of these things that they've put in place. Silly things like you can't wear shorts into church or whatever other ones you grew up in. And these things that became so important. I mean, they're ridiculous if you sit back and think through the years, right? The things that we used to think, like, that means you're a Christian. Like, you you don't watch rated R movies, right? Unless they're violent, that's okay. But the other stuff is bad, right? And there were all these little rules. If I were to borrow a, like a country club metaphor, it's the idea, if you pay all of your dues up front, then you can get into the club. And then people go, well, there's no way I have enough money to pay all of my dues up front. There's no way I could ever become good enough, so I'm not even going to join. And in here, the justification is this. It's a justification by works, and then you get your salvation. Once you've cleaned up, once you've earned it, then you can get it. Warning number two, it's in the following verse. It says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Sometimes I'm going to yell. Sometimes I'm going to say it quiet just for a dramatic effect. For you travel across sea and land. Who do we call people that travel across sea and land? Missionaries. Like note who Jesus is calling out here. These are not the people that are just like, yeah, maybe I kind of love Jesus. No, these are people who are in Committed. They look committed deeply. How deeply committed? They're missionaries. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell. Anyone else got a child of hell? I don't. I love my kids. As yourselves. This one. The, the warning is you preach the gospel and then you turn it into spiritual slavery. You, you preach a gospel of freedom. You, you preach a gospel of God's grace. You preach it and people go, that sounds amazing. And then they step in and you go, hey, I'm glad you stepped in. And you put weight on them. Say, now let me tell you how, how or what you have to do in order to be a Christian. You have to do this and you have to give that and you have to be here and you can't say this and you can't do that anymore and you have to act like this. And if you do all of those things, then you can continue to stay with us. And actually, as you keep walking, instead of getting better, it actually gets heavier. We actually give you more and more and more and more to carry. Some of you have escaped from this. Some of you are still in it. And it is exhausting The first one is exhausting over here. And people look and they go, I don't even want to enter into that. The second one gets exhausting over here and it becomes like a dead faith. They came in in freedom. This is exactly what was happening in Galatians. They came in in freedom, but then everything was thrown on top of them. They were crushed under the weight of it. Paul talked about this all throughout Galatians, and he says every time we do that, we just nullify the cross. We make it useless. 
The justification here is it's like a justification through ongoing good works. So again, you're, you're in, but now you got to keep on going. It's like joining the club for free, but then you have your $3.99 a month, and then you also have to like, you know, go to the clubhouse and buy the meal certain times a month, and then you also have to actually help clean the course, and you have to make sure that everything's good, and you got to come to the four meetings, and you have to, have to, have to, have to. Because that's what good members do. Both of these, they're exhausting. A lot of times they lead to a spiritual burnout and you look at people and you go, man, I wonder what happened to them. Oh, yeah, remember when they used to be a real Christian? And they're just crushed under the weight of it. That's warning number two. You're like, full of good news today, aren't you, Stephen? Well, when the word woe is the most like big word, we'll get there. Number three, woe to you, blind guides. He introduces a new theme here, blindness. Oftentimes we think, oh, those people are blind because they're caught in their sin. Jesus is saying, oh, those people are blind because they're caught in their good behavior. Woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. It goes on in this one. And it's a lot of words that if I read them, you'd kind of go, I don't exactly know what he's talking about. So let me just, you can read them on your own later. Let me summarize what's going on here. In this, what's happening is they're exchanging the action for the one whom the action is for. It's elevating the action as opposed to the the worship of the king that is underneath it. This one I'm going to summarize, the warning is against what I'm going to call just as a summary of the first two and into this one, moralism. And the idea of moralism is this, that uh, my rebellion against God is, is, is not an amoral or an immoral rebellion. It's a moral rebellion. And, and it's that I do so much and I do so much good and I obey so much and I sacrifice. You're going to see this. The rest of this text is filled with sacrifices that I sacrifice so much. And what it does is it earns my status before God. This is a common thing. The the justification becomes my sacrifice or my obedience. God, I'm obedient. God, I've sacrificed so deeply for you. God, look how I've worked for you through the years. And one of the easy ways to begin to identify that this is true in our life is when something bad happens to us, we look at God and go, whoa, I thought my ledger was high enough. How come something bad's happening? And when something bad is happening, then we have to turn to God and go, God, I can't believe you're doing this to me. What's going on? Look how good I've been. I thought I'd earned your good graces. This one is equally as exhausting because it's like we're constantly creating a ledger in our head of all of our good things, and we're trying to weigh them against our bad things. Let me give you a very freeing spiritual tip here. The next time you sin... And you know when you sin. The next time you do, that's what I want you to do. Nothing. Don't do a thing. You know why? 
Because our temptation, your temptation is the moment you commit that sin, what is it? You think to yourself, okay, here's what I'm going to do in response. I'm going to go read my Bible right now. I'm going to go back to church this weekend. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go write a check. I'm going to go online and give, right? Like some of you give at really weird times. Now I know why, okay? Like, like I'm going to go do this. And, and what you're doing is you're in that moment, you're going like, okay, okay, God, I'm sorry, but look what I just did. Aren't we good now? Instead, you know what you could do? Just do nothing. Just do nothing except go, oh, and I'm covered in your grace. And I'm as righteous right now as I was 10 minutes ago before. That's freeing. That's a spiritual maturity that all of a sudden you really do in that moment believe that your justification is coming from Christ's righteousness and not your own behavior. Now, after that moment, do you want to walk forward differently? Of course you do. Paul tells us that his grace is to lead us to repentance and holiness. But his grace is to lead us to that, not you jumping over the grace part and your own behavior leading you to repentance and holiness. And a lot of times we jump that step. In this third one in particular, but really in in the first three and in all of these ones, the difficulty in this is that these people us, when we live in this way, look like and are in many definitions good people, doing good things, but trying to justify ourselves before God as a result of those good things. And that is an alienation from him and the heart of the Father, just as rebellious sin is. Number four, This one, he just kind of gets specific. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. He's reintroducing uh, or or hitting again the idea of blindness, which uh, is really all throughout this text. He's saying you're spiritually blind and you're blind. Why? In this case, why are you blind? Because you're tithing. What's the warning? You can't buy your way into this kingdom, man. He said, you're blind because of your tithing. At the heart of this one, your giving is your justification. Let me give it a modern twist. Yo, I tithe. Get off my back. And here, he's he's pointing this one out specifically because he's saying, look how far you take it. Like you go all the way. Like you're even tithing on your child tax care credit thingy that just magically shows up. You're tithing on all of it. 
like, yeah, you should do that. But man, you think that's the big thing and that's actually just a little thing. Get those words. Jesus is like, hey, yo, you're extreme tithing. That's just a little thing. Not a big thing. And it's not the only thing. And this person has made it the only thing. Now, now. The word, this one is about tithing, but I think we can just throw that word out there and we can put anything else in there. We can say, my serving is my justification. My parenting is my justification. My church attendance is my justification. You, you pick the one thing that you've nailed and you use that as the thing. Say, now I'm justified. Why? Because of this. Look at what I've done. Look at what I do. And some of you, you, you read this and, and you see, you, you should not and have not neglect, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And you're like, whoo, I never tithe, but I am a justice warrior. And you know what you did? You just took out tithe and put justice in there. And you just took out that and put in mercy. You just, took, you just put the thing that you're good at in there and said, look, I must be okay because look, I do this thing. And that thing becomes the thing. And anyone else who doesn't do that thing isn't as good as you because you do that thing. And this is what begins to happen, by the way, in all of these is not only are they exhausting, but they can't help but create some kind of judgmental division between people who do and who do not. They can't help but create, I do, and that's my justification, and you don't do, so you're not justified. And then it creates this divide And in the religious house, those who come in from the outside will begin to sense it because they'll walk in and they'll say, I don't look like everybody in here. They'll sit out in the parking lot for for five minutes and go, can I wear shorts in there? I don't do like this. I don't do like that. I don't speak like that. I didn't grow up like that. And then this divide begins to emerge. Number five. Five and six are uh, really just like part one and, and, and part two of, of the part. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Notice he puts that one right at their tithe. He's like, hey, you tithe, but you're still greedy. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So Reagan's sick, and that's why Lindsay's not here this morning. And uh, she, she threw up a couple times, so I went and picked her up, and I'm, I'm bringing her home. And um, she's like, Daddy, I don't want to throw up again. And I was like, yeah, I know, baby. I think you're done, and I don't want you to throw up anymore. She's like, Daddy, I really don't want to throw up again. What I didn't know is that in three-year-old, that means what? Thank you. Why, where were you all yesterday? <laughs> My 2009 Ford Escape would really thank you right now. So I did not know this. I was just like, yeah, she's killing this thing. We're done, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So we get home, and she sits down, and she kind of gets some water. So I give her some water. She actually asked for chocolate milk, but I said no to that. Right. So I gave her some water. 
and uh, she's drinking the water and she's got like this like, you know, kind of like vomit, like phlegm, like combo thing going on. And, and, and after a little while, man, I'm looking at that cup and I'm like, that thing is like, I don't know if that's vomit. I don't know if that's phlegm. And she's just drinking away like a happy little person. I'm like, this is gross. I'm like looking at the thing. I'm like, there's floating particles in here. It's like, I'm going to give you a new cup. This is disgusting, child. Ugh. And God says that every righteous thing you've ever done to earn your salvation is equally as disgusting to him. Every time you went to church because you thought that's what I'm supposed to do. Every time you gave because you had messed up and you thought this will make it right. Every time you thought, if I just do, 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 then God will have to do for me. That's how gross he thinks it is. Next one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others. Good for you. It's so important for these people, by the way, to appear righteous to others. But within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This one is just like the, first, the, the last one, but like a, like a better metaphor. Saying there, there, there's... There's these coffins that they were there and they would whitewash them. And the idea was that the, the comparison he's drawing is like whitewashing the coffin like it would preserve the bones underneath. Like he's saying, like if you dress the part, then your soul will be okay. And it won't. And this is why I always say these, these people are the most miserable because they have painted the coffin as white as it can possibly be. And their soul is dying underneath. And it's decaying. And they just keep slapping white paint on it. Thinking, why isn't it coming to life? Maybe more paint will work. It won't. Number seven. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous. Saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. The irony is so thick in this. See, what's happening in this one is Jesus is looking at them and he's saying, here's how blind you are. You think you're the type of people that would never kill a spiritual leader. You're so blind that you think, no, no, we're the good ones. We would never hurt a spiritual leader. And then what did they do in the next scene? They killed Jesus. Not one of the prophets. Not one of the kings. No, they killed Jesus, the ultimate spiritual leader. And what he's doing is he's pointing a picture to all who look and say, no, I'm the good one. 
I'm the one who does it right. Because I discipline my kids. I, whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm the one. They're all wrong. And Jesus is saying, you're so blind. You've used all of that as a cover. A cover to do what? To not bow and submit your heart fully to Jesus. Because there is only one justification. Christ is my justification. It's the only place to end up. Christ and Christ alone. Jesus told a story once to try to summarize this idea. It's a story of a father and his two sons. And it's a story that has worked its way into our common vernacular in religious terms when we talk about uh, the prodigal returning. And so the way the story goes is uh, there's uh, two sons and, and they have a father and, and, and the younger son goes to the father and says, hey, I need a bunch of your money right now because I want to go live my life. And the father sells some of the estate and gives the younger son the money and he leaves and he goes and he spends it like a foolish man on all of the things that we would look at and say, that is sin and that is bad and there's nothing holy or good about the way that that young man was living. In fact, this is just disgusting how this kid is living. And at one point he finds himself in such deep despair in the middle of the mud and he looks up and he goes, man, life was better with dad. And he comes home. And the father wraps his arms around him and he says, man, I'll bring you right back in. And it's one of the stories that we tell around here to prove our point that everyone is invited to experience redemption because we believe it, even the prodigal. And some of us were prodigals in that way. And that story melts our hearts because we see the love of God just winning us back. Some of us have prodigals, and that's what we're praying. But it was a story of two sons, not one. And the whole time, the younger son was not wasting dad's money, doing whatever he wants. The older son stayed home, did what he was supposed to do, obeyed all of the rules, was always at church, always gave, always served, always helped out, did everything perfectly right. And his heart wasn't tested until the younger son showed up. Because often our heart isn't tested in this way until the disgusting one is in our midst. And then it begins to show. Because what happened is the younger, older brother, the good one, steps up and goes, You're gonna accept him? And then he does this. 
What about me? I've always done the right thing. I didn't do any of that stuff. And the father says, I'm going to throw a party. And you're both invited. And in the scripture, the parties always represent heaven. Always. So I'm going to throw a party. And at the end of the story, the younger son is at the party and the older one is not. And he's not there because of his good work. Or he didn't have enough of it. He's there because his good work blinded him from being able to look at the father and say, you're the reason I get to go to the party, not me. And what the story points us to is that we needed a better older brother. Not an older brother who stays and does everything right so that the father might owe him the rest of the estate, but a big brother who would leave the estate behind and go search for the younger brother. And so we have that older brother in Jesus, the perfect one who left the estate of heaven and came down to earth to do what? To rescue us in both our younger brother rebellion and our older brother religion. And to rescue us out of it and to become the only justification that we would ever need. So friends, it's easy for me to get to an end of a church service and to tell you to repent from your rebellion. It's another thing for me to challenge you that you may need to repent from your religion. That you may need to repent from the very older brother spirit of pride, religious observance, that is trying to make it so that you make yourself right with him. And then we repent. And repentance is simply, Jesus, I finally get it. I'm the dirty water in the cup. But you are the spring of fresh new water. And when Christ becomes our sole justification, we will know by a few ways. One, we will surrender everything. Everything. Two, we will operate with a great humility. And three, we will become the better older brother who goes and loves the younger brothers and rescues them. And that's when you know that Christ has been made your only justification. Let's pray.
Father, as a recovering older brother, as a recovering self-righteous, did all of the right things, older brother, I thank you that you have given me a justification that is so much better than anything I could have ever earned or built on my own. And Father, I have to believe that there might be some others in here who need to be set free from this type of religion. And so, Father, I pray that the grace and the gospel of good news of justification in Christ alone would pour into our hearts. And Father, may it make us humble. May it make us holy. May it make us surrendered. And may it make us gracious and kind. And where the spirit of religion would ever want to surface itself here in our body or in our hearts, may the gospel of grace come down and clear it away again. For this is your church. Father, as we wrap up this series, thank you for the work you have done in us. With great humility, we ask that as we turn our attention outward, that you would take what you have worked in and you would work out now. And we would be humbled to be used by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.